Jealousy is described differently based on the expectations and norms that people have, their norms and beliefs, um, that is often based on what their relationship structure is, right? Also, we use different strategies, and that's what my data is showing is that there are different strategies employed when jealousy shows up. And that's where there is so much generative potential for people to learn from people in different relationship structures. People, I think, expect me to say that it will always be non-monogamous people. We got to always learn from them. But in fact, what I'm finding is that many monogamous people have put in a lot of clear boundaries and have allowed themselves to decide to be in what I would say smaller or simpler containers in part because they know that that's the best choice for their nervous system at the phase that they're in. Certainly, we could all learn from that, right? And so it's about how they deal with it, what they do with it. And there's there are other differences, but that's the primary one. That, like, that, that there is something for all sides to learn from each other. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. Whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about jealousy research with Dr. Jolie Hamilton. Dr. Jolie Hamilton is the relationship coach for couples who color outside the lines. She's a research psychologist, TEDx speaker, best-selling author, and ASECT certified sex educator. Jolie also co-hosts the Playing With Fire podcast with her anchor partner, Ken. Jolie's been featured in the New York Times, Vogue, and NPR, and of course, her greatest accomplishment yet, the Multi-Amory Podcast. <laughs> Jolie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It, it is actually, I don't get nervous before recording very often, and I was like, oh, I have a little bit of the feels. I have a little wow. bit. Of I got. I had. I had the butterflies a little bit in all good ways. But oh, that's yeah. good. Well, as everyone knows, we just like to destroy guests that come oh, on God. our show yeah, and just huge put them reputation. In the hot seat. Yeah, Goodness. huge reputation. We're just have, hating I, people. For some days, yeah. Sometimes I have that. What if we just found like one guest and we just completely break format one day and just tear them apart? I mean, not in a mean way. Right? It'd be someone we actually would have some some choice, some beef with. educated critique for. Right. Um, but it's so just not our brand. That makes a lot of sense. So, like, you could do some consensual, non consent stuff there. You could oh, definitely ooh, play at the end. So, we can make it kinky. Yeah. I didn't think uh, about that flavor. Uh, I like that, actually. Uh, it's an hmm. interesting, interesting take there. Like, all new, an all new podcasting landscape for us. Wow. Right. So, actually, I didn't even write this question down ahead of time, but I'm recalling from your website when you're talking a little bit about your background and your history. If I'm recalling this correctly, you decide to, you know, you reach that point where you decide to explore non-monogamy and open your relationship. And then you're basically like, I need to get my doctorate to understand this. And then here you are. Was that was that the correct story beats, essentially? I mean, it's kind of the beats, but it's I think it, it would have to justly include decided to jump into non-monogamy did it really badly set my whole world on fire, threw it in the wood chipper, and to find my way 
out of it, I was like, somebody must have figured this out. And my way of figuring things out is to turn to the books. And since there weren't as many resources as there are now, like Mm -hmm. your delightful book yourselves, I, yeah, I was like, okay, I'll study the closest thing I can find, which was psychology. Wow. Wow. I mean, I think I can relate to that. I think all three of us, you know, on our own individual journeys, brushing up against non-traditional relationships, clearly all three of us had a similar seed, right? Of like, we got to learn about these things and look at the research and read the books and see what other people are saying, right? And sort of that similar thing of like back in the day, not as many resources. And so you just kind of plumb the depths for as whatever you can find. Yeah. For me, it was totally about plumbing the depths, too. So that's why I chose the direction I did. And that kind of puts into context the title of your podcast, Playing With Fire, as well. Is that about non-monogamy? You're playing with the potential fire of sort of changing your relationship landscape as a whole? Well, you know, it actually, it's twofold. So yeah, one, you are playing with fire and fire's awesome, right? It's fireworks and it's a campfire and it's awesome. It's also pretty impressively dangerous. And it's also the most common thing I heard said to me when I was opening, when I left a monogamous marriage for a triad and everybody was like, you're playing with fire. You are playing with fire. Like I was. It's true. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly what it's the journey that I needed. It also mimics I'm I care a lot about the individuation journey. And so I mean, that also is playing with fire. You're in your interiority trying to figure out who you are and what all this is. <laughs> that is also playing with fire. <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, can you explain that a little bit more? We, we've had, you know, we've had talks about individuation on this show before. I think it's been a while, though. So can you explain that a little bit? And I'm really curious about your interpretation of that also being a form of playing with fire. Yeah. So I like to get really specific about this because the word itself, for me, comes out of, I I use it in the sense of Jungian psychology. So I would say that individuation is simply put the process of becoming the most you version of you possible by shedding what is not yours, but you were asked to carry or you were asked to conform to, and by remembering or recollecting and stitching back onto you all those things that you cut off in order to fit in. Hmm. This is different from differentiation, which is telling the difference between myself and other. It's also different from individualism. And that, I think, is is what people often associate with that person who's saying, my needs are more than others. So individuation, I'm taking it in a really psychological sense. It's about becoming the most you version of you possible. Yeah. So, I mean, even from the a surface level understanding of this, I think I, it's pretty apparent how choosing to explore a non-traditional relationship framework relates to that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The the turn of phrase used about like restitching on the things we cut off of ourselves in order to fit in. I mean, it goes just beyond non-monogamy, right? That goes into gender and sexuality and so many different things. Exactly. And when I think about individuation and my own experience of shifting from that first half of life, um, say like up till you're around 35, 40 ish when you're building your sense of who you can be in this world and like just be able to survive, there's so much energy spent on trying to fit in so that you can survive. And for me, there was a big shift between 31 and 40. I spent so much time trying to remember who I was. It wasn't just about discovering. It was also about remembering. And that 
came to me through the process of figuring out, oh, I've always fallen in love with more than one person. I've always been sexually adventurous. I've always had this non-conforming attitude. And that itself, had a, it found a home in the non-monogamous realm. But the individuation journey is bigger than that as well. Yeah, it's it reminds me of a topic that comes up so often on this show, which is that kind of examining of which parts of X are from culture, from society, things that I absorbed and what's really me and how that's in a way an impossible question to truly say, yeah, 100% it's this and not this, but more that it's kind of this ongoing thing. Like whenever we, whenever the question of opening up or being new to non-monogamy comes up, we often talk a lot about the unlearning process being even harder than the learning process. It's like figuring out oh, what's all that kind of extra baggage I took on that I that I don't need and isn't serving me. But yeah, then when it comes to things like attraction, you know, who we're attracted to, it's like, is that even me? You know, how much of that is stuff that got tacked on, right? That's so difficult to figure that out. A hundred percent. When you are, when you're developing your capacity to even be aware of your attractions and what turns you on and what you're interested in, you are also at the most tender phase of life for fitting in and trying mm. to be safe, mm. while also trying to figure out how to make your own way in the world and trying to be whoever it is you need to be to literally not die in this capitalist hellscape, right? So you're doing all those things at the same time. It makes sense that you would pick things up that aren't yours, that you would take things off that were yours. And I don't think that there needs to be any objective sense of here, I've got it. Now I have me. And in fact, there's a really clear piece of the individuation process that I think helps us remember that there is no such thing as individuated. You don't get there. You don't mm. arrive. You don't finish yeah. any more than you would get, get enlightened and then be done like that. That's just not a thing us humans are really we're not really <laughs> there for. We're, we're in a process. And so. For me, that's a really exciting thing because I don't have to figure it out so much as feel into what's real for me and what's true for me and what my nervous system can handle me accepting right now. And then also just what I want to explore with right now. And all of those are part of really taking non-monogamy and making it a psychological process. And that's how I see it. It's interesting because I was going to ask that question, can one ever become like individuated? But you just said no. So that makes sense because I, I think that's a really sort of unattainable goal. But when I think of non-monogamy, often I think of looking at myself through the lens of others and learning about self through, you know, knowing many different people, expanding through what they how they view you, how you are with them things along those lines. And so I wonder, like, how does individuation kind of go along with that? Because it's about other people, too, and how you interact with them and, and what they bring out within you. I guess I wonder, is that does it help with that by being with multiple people? Because you're not only seeing yourself through the eyes of one person, like you might in monogamy or a long-term relationship. Yeah, you are you are hitting the sweet spot for me, Emily, completely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So when I was trained in Jungian psychology, I, I was swimming in a sea of people who are who tend to be deeply introverted and be and care a lot about the internal experience. I happen to be an extrovert's extrovert. 
I also happen to really love relationships, especially messy, complicated ones. Like the messier, the better. My clients tend to come to me with situations that they're like, nobody can help us. I'm like, hang on. I am so into that. Tell me more. But when when I went to school, I was like, well, what about the relational? Because everything I'm finding out about myself, I'm finding out because I have, say, at one point, I had two partners who like could not, we could not seem to be the same person all in the same room. So the three of us couldn't all be in a room and be showing our full selves. So I started to think of this as something I'm calling relational individuation, where I explicitly use my relationships with multiple people, whether those are romantic or friendships or family, I don't care who they are, but people close enough to me, I can use yeah, exactly what you're saying, how they're seeing me, how they're informing me, and how I'm interacting with each of them. Am I showing up as my full self with all of them, or am I actually splintering, splitting, I like to think of myself or any of my clients, I'll ask them to picture if you were a jewel and you had all these facets and yeah, you still got, you know, you're, you're like G- the back of the geo, the shadow stuff back there. Nobody's seeing. But imagine all of these beautiful <laughs> facets. Are you taking your relationships and showing just a few facets to each person or are you actively opening yourself to know more of you through all of these different relationships and then your job in the individuation process is getting to know and then integrate and weave these into your wholeness. It's not other people. That, so that's the internal part. The, but the external yeah. part of having multiple partners, yeah, relational individuation, that's, that's it for me. Love that. Boy, I, I just, yeah, I really want to sit down and just think for a long time. <laughs> like that's really making me want to just like really chew on that. Mm-hmm. And because, yeah, as, as Emily said, I think when you've been practicing non-monogamy for any amount of time, it becomes very clear very quickly, right? Like, oh, this is so interesting that I show up this way in this relationship and this other way in this relationship. You know, different stuff gets triggered with this person, different activities I do with this person, different types of sex with different people. But yeah, the idea of then taking it a, a step lower into, but like, is a part of that yeah, where I'm like hiding things, where I'm taking things off, where I'm putting things on that don't belong to me. Like that that feels like this extra level layer deeper. Right. And so I can see how, how, yeah, how this comes out as a psychological process, like you were saying. Right. So if you just think about exactly what you described, you are facing, so again, in, in, in Jungian or depth language, you face the shadow, the parts of you that are, you do not see, you face it because other people are showing you. Some of what they're showing you is through projection, but a bunch of it is like, hey, (laughs) you are acting your shadow out on them. But also, yeah, we have to strip away some of our persona, all those masks that we wear to help other people like us, but they're not they're not authentic. They're not real or they're only real for very limited contexts. It would be like trying to reintegrate your work persona right back into your home life. Many people find that to be jarring. And so do that, but do that across multiple meaningful relationships. And now you have you have access to the exact work that some of our great thinkers have said, hey, if you face this, you will grow and you will continue to grow throughout your life. And for me, that's what relationships are for. They're they're for growth. Yeah. The fact that you brought up earlier the concept of enlightenment, you know, that it's not a thing you arrive at and you are enlightened. And that's something that, you know, the the three of us, especially Dedeker, you know, read a lot of Buddhist writings and things like that as well. And that's a recurring theme is that whole concept of 
enlightenment isn't a goal. It's not an end state. It's something that you're constantly striving toward. And even people who are considered enlightened masters will say themselves, yeah, I'm in it sometimes and I'm not sometimes. It's not a, it's not a state that I just, I get there and now I'm there. And just to, to bring that back to what you're talking about, I think is something that frustrates a lot of people who want a really clear answer of just, no, but tell me the thing I should do so I can do it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, Get a gold star in individuation or enlightenment. Uh, <laughs> right. Or even just in non-monogamy or in my relationships or something, right? In communication. And I just, I just want to highlight that point that you're bringing up about how it's more about constantly observing that and maybe becoming more aware of it again to use kind of a mindfulness way of thinking about it yeah and freeing yourself of that right because in your example though of of there are situations where i might want to do some masking or i may be intentionally hiding some part of myself for a good reason and kind of learning to understand it better so that rather than that kind of becoming the default way i show up all the time it's more a tool in my toolbox. A hundred percent. There's a complete difference from my perspective between consciously choosing to mask, consciously deciding to even even have an entire alter ego to go enter some spaces. I, I mean, certainly anybody who plays just in scene in BDSM understands putting on an alter ego and then taking it off. And that's great. And it can be so fun. It can be freeing. That can absolutely be psychologically advantageous material. There's so much evidence um, just showing up in the literature now saying like, oh, yeah, the thing that the kinksters have known for all this time. Yeah, that's that's real. (laughs) And that can pay off. And most of the time I'm watching my clients, I'm watching people I know in real life struggle to tell the difference between their persona and their actual self. And that's where it becomes so helpful to just consider that your relationships may show you where you are unconsciously masking, where you are unconsciously in your persona and bring you into greater relationship with like, oh, can I, I could choose this or I could choose not to. I could cho- choose to show up in, a, in a, a more complete version of me and that risks rejection. So sometimes it's not what we want to choose and that's legit. You get to. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm like, I'm having a total like psychology, non-monogamy philosophy boner right now not to make it too blue we don't usually go that far on this show um because i i way back in my early 20s so i have my undergrad degree in theater actually um which intersects with a lot of this philosophy quite nicely and yeah in some of my early undergrad classes we did have to take theatrical philosophy courses and i remember sir peter hall is a really well-known philosopher who writes a lot about theater and um he wrote this book called exposed by the mask and literally kind of his whole point was was making this argument that we're so used to thinking about these things as, oh, I wear this collection of masks, you know, and but there's a real self underneath it, right? Like my real self that's maybe part shadow, maybe part just like who I am when I'm by myself or whatever. And I'm making this argument of like, no, there is nothing behind the mask. You are the collection of masks, mm-hmm. you know, because even when you're by yourself, there's a particular mask, a particular persona that you put on. And so, yeah, it is about, I guess, when we're in intimate relationship of both showing and then being shown what's in our collection of masks, mm-hmm. as it were, that is some of this work. I have all the gooshes now. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I teach a process um, I call the inner counsel process that's 
designed exactly to get at that, Dedeker. It's designed Mm -hmm. to help people very simply. So we think often about like, through like IFS therapy, um, you think about parts work, right? And we talk about parts. But what I've noticed is many people, those so-called parts, they get a little irritated by calling them parts. Those parts don't want to be thought of as parts. They're whole autonomous beings, if you will, inside of us. And we are the sum total of them. And from a Jungian perspective, we are also both all of that and beyond that, right? And so when I'm teaching the inner counsel process, what I'm teaching is for people to think about these these aspects of self in a whole way. Like they get to really have personalities and they get to be us and not be separate from us and not be assigned. Because I love IFS up to a point because when we start assigning those roles and saying, those are the managers and those are the protectors and those are the exiles, we forget that in fact, if we stay close to the image, and that's what um, psychologist James Hillman would tell us, stay close to the image. And if I stay close to the image of all of these different so-called parts, what I have are these autonomous aspects of self that make up me. And some of them are complete and whole, and some of them do feel fragmented. But I, for instance, have a part that I could call a part. She is so entirely real and whole. And when she comes out and holds the stage, right? I have a completely different look. My face changes. I feel different. And this, I think, fell out of vogue to talk about when we went through a whole lot of pushing aside people with um, dissociative identity disorders and things. And mm. yet it's it's if you just look, it's just so clear that this is normal. This is completely mm-hmm. reasonable behavior for being a human. So, yeah, I'm so into it. <laughs> Just real quick for the layperson and the listener, can you uh, just say what IFS and like parts yeah. is Yeah, that yeah. you were speaking I, of? I got deep real fast. Um, so no problem. IFS, internal family systems theory. Got it. And I like to just remind everybody, every theory, the Jungian theory, these are all theories. So if you don't like them, it's fine because they're just theories. Um, internal family systems theory posits the idea of these different parts of ourselves that we formed in order to protect us or to manage the symptoms of being in a complicated situation. Some of them are even called exiles, and those exiles are those parts that we've completely abandoned. So I I think that this is, it can be helpful language. If it works for you, awesome. But my parts tend to get kind of irritable, and I've noticed a lot of my clients' parts get irritable about these labels. So I've just dropped them and asked people to return to the idea of, these are complexes. They are, they have a wholeness to themselves. And if we treat them that way, there's a piece that comes with just populating the council like, oh, and I actually make, I, I, I bring my council together. I have a whole bunch of stuffed animals and Christmas ornaments and fridge magnets that mm-hmm. represent these aspects of self and remind me that it's up to me to integrate all the different ways I'm showing up in the world. That's, the, that's my part, the integration of it, the, the conversation between these different aspects. And there are a lot of ways to do that. IFS is one, but I happen to like this this slightly more intricate way because, I mean, in order to do it, you kind of got to take on the whole Jungian thing. And I like to simplify that as much as possible. <laughs> right. We are going to take a quick break to talk about sponsors for this episode. If you appreciate the show, if you're learning a lot, please take a moment to listen to our sponsors and also to use our special promo codes. It directly helps us to keep this show going. Thank you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. 
laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, forward, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. For a long time now, we've been fans of AdamandEve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on AdamMail.com and Eve'sToys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store, and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. Well, so I wanted to circle back to, you were talking about stuff that's showing up in the evidence, and I wanted to talk about your research as well, because uh, you researched jealousy, correct? Yes. Yeah, I, yeah. I did and I do. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm asking this question and I could probably theorize 600 different answers, but I'll just go ahead and ask the question, why research jealousy? Okay. I accidentally tattooed the Japanese symbol for jealousy on my back 15 years oh. ago. And so it's literally okay, been what, following what was the me. Accidental, what was the accidental part of it? Yeah. So um, my first polyamorous lover said to me, I love your passion and intensity for all of life. And I was like, damn, I am getting that tattooed on my back. This was, oh. I already had the symbol <laughs> mm-hmm. for mother on my back. And I, this was before mm-hmm. I knew anything about cultural appropriation. So I had a translator mm-hmm. who I was working with translate it for me. And she worked and worked and worked. She's like, we just don't really have, she's like, I could do intensity. I could do light, like, unless you want a whole thing down your back, I, we just don't have anything. And then about three weeks later, she came back and said, I've got it. It's the word zeal. And I was like, awesome. I'm in zeal, mm-hmm. the Greek root for zealous which is follows through to jealous. 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 And there we are. So right. oh. I, I think it's just, it picked me right at the beginning of my journey. <laughs> and so wow. I made a commitment to jealousy to stick with her. Uh, yeah, well, well, she's stuck on your back. Yeah. So so you're, you're sticking together for life. Wow. Okay. So where to even begin with the research? You know, I, I know we've covered some jealousy research on this show, but I mean, I'm guess I'm curious. Like, let's start with like where you began and like what were, how did you set up your own research? What were your methods? Yeah. When you first started studying? So I'm a qualitative researcher, so I don't so much count things as I describe them. I started from the premise that I wanted to get to know jealousy better as an arch- 
I wanted to know if it was an archetypal quality. And archetypal, from the archetypal psychology perspective is, is this an emotion that, that actually is big enough that it just has an autonomous nature? When we can tell something is archetypal when it is both overwhelming and completely banal, mundane, every day. Jealousy is both mundane. It just, you know, it's anybody can feel it at any moment. And when it shows up, it can be a tidal wave that knocks you right off your feet. So I wanted to know if that was true, for one thing. And also, I wanted to know more about what it was like for people to actually be in their jealousy. And so not so much just count up how often they were feeling it or or what circumstance even, but like really, like what is that? What is the quality of that? And so I set myself up to discover first through a non-monogamous lens. That was my first study. So I did an interpretative phenomenological analysis of 13 individuals who experience non-monogamy by their own description, because that all works out a little bit differently. And um, right now, I'm actually in the sister study to that, where I am doing a monogamous sample. So I'm just writing, I'm in the write-up phase of the first of three parts to that monogamous sample, because it took a little while to collect the the men and the non-binary voices. The the women's voices came in first, so they're who are hitting the the research first, um, and that's just getting written up, literally right now. Oh my goodness. Wow. Wow. Through these two studies, how have you found that monogamous people experience jealousy differently than non-monogamous people? That is exactly what, like, that was at the core. So after I established, Mm -hmm. yes, jealousy has an archetypal quality, like, that's its nature, I was curious if it's experienced differently based on relationship structure. Um, And that's a, it's a yes and. Jealousy is described differently based on the expectations and norms that people have, their norms and beliefs, um, that is often based on what their relationship structure is, right? Also, we use different strategies. And that's what my data is showing is that there are different strategies employed when jealousy shows up. And that's where there is so much generative potential for people to learn from people in different relationship structures. People, I think, expect me to say, that it will always be non-monogamous people. We got to always learn from them. But in fact, what I'm finding is that many monogamous people have put in a lot of clear boundaries and have allowed themselves to decide to be in what I would say smaller or simpler containers in part because they know that that's the best choice for their nervous system at the phase that they're in. Certainly, we could all learn from that, right? And so it's about how they deal with it, what they do with it. And there's there are other differences, but that's the primary one that like that that there is something for all sides to learn from each other. Yeah. And thank you for saying that. I mean, I know that's something we're really passionate about on this show as well is this idea that it's not just the non-monogamous weirdos over there or like the toxic, unevolved monogamous people over there. You know, like it's all about kind of trying to translate these two different viewpoints and glean like what are the gems here on both sides? Totally. And I as I asked people to describe to me their experiences of jealousy, there were some really obvious things like I I had the only people in my monogamous sample who were able to name um, an antonym for jealousy, some other way that they might feel. Mm-hmm. They were therapists who trained a li- at least a little bit to understand how to work with non-monogamous clients. So they at least knew the word, right? They knew the word compersion. (laughs) 
all the rest of them, they didn't have that that word. And I know from myself, mm. just raising children, if a kid doesn't have a word to name their experience, it's real hard to foster it. So there are some really simple pieces of data that are coming out like, hey, let's just introduce this word to all relationship styles, simply put. Um, but then there were some more nuanced pieces like, what exactly, where should we be spending our attention? What is attention in relationships? And if attention is assumed, as, as se several of my monogamous participants described, attention needing to be a, like a primary resource that should be directed at them as the partner. Interestingly, they didn't necessarily see how they should have to direct all their attention to their partners. There is just like, like uh, a juiciness of like, we hmm. want attention, right? That's one of the commodities in relationship. And in the non-monogamous sample, there were people who absolutely described struggling with that same thing. And they had done some, some coming to grips with, oh, I'm going to have to figure out how to manage this desire for attention or attention exclusivity because I, because I can't actually have it. And hmm. I mean, that doesn't, again, to me, that's not about whether we have a lot of lovers or not. That's about whether we can manage the complexity of being with people who may or may not meet our expectations for attention, for being in relationship to us, for getting us, understanding us. Yeah, that attention piece got my attention. Sorry, <laughs> I couldn't help it. Uh, that, that really kind of made my, my ears perk up in, in thinking about that because it, something that we talk about a lot in monogamous relationships is this idea that Within monogamy, there's kind of this cultural belief that your partner becomes everything to you. Like they end up, they're your best friend. They're your personal trainer. They're the person who takes out the garbage. They're also the person you have sex with. They're, you know, they're literally every single thing. They're your confessor. They're your coach, all of that. Right. And basically that that's not practical or realistic or healthy to do. Yeah. Right. And and so that attention thing does bring me back to that idea of how much of that comes from this just this cultural narrative that in order for you to be totally loved, it means someone needs to be kind of obsessed with you, like that you're the only thing they ever think about, because that's in all the romantic shit, right? That's the sentiment that gets expressed a lot. Absolutely. So first off, in in my in my research many people did name like, yep, this is my person and therefore I should get all my needs met here. Like they were very clear about that. Um, it was not just how they were seeking safety. It was what they believed they should do, even if it wasn't working well, even if they were struggling really hard. And that was hard for me because as a researcher, I was sitting there saying, oh, you could break that paradigm and stay monogamous and you could break that paradigm. You don't, And I obviously that was not my role as researcher. So I'm like, Maybe they'll find me somewhere else. We'll see. <laughs> but um, also, when I'm working with clients, I, I'm noticing more and more people still struggle. I'll have people that are years into their non-monogamous adventure, say, and they're still just just struggling so hard with the idea that they can't have this Disney version of love. They like they know it cognitively. They understand that that is not realistic nor healthy. Um, and they're also just not getting it. But what do they do with it? Because their body still seems to want it. And all of those little, all those parts, right, that we were talking about, all those aspects of self, that inner counsel I've assembled, parts of them are like, 
we should get the thing. If the, if it were real, we would get the thing. And the thing is this Disneyfied version. This is so fascinating because it's making me think of the, you know, years and years and years of being asked questions, whether it's from family and friends or in an interview capacity or in a, especially in like a mainstream interview capacity, all the normal questions, right? Like, how do you have time for that? How do you manage your energy? How, like, what about like, really, you have sex with more than one person? Wait, but what if this happens? What if that happens? What about the jealousy, right? And no one has ever asked me about attention as a resource. And it makes sense. Why would they? I don't think we're used to thinking about it as a resource in that way. But that's so interesting because, you know, I've been, I've had experiences in relationships where I'm spending a lot of time with a partner, but I don't feel like they're very attentive. And it doesn't matter that I'm getting most of their time. Like I'm frustrated because I feel like I'm not getting the attention that I want versus I can, you know, not go without seeing a partner for weeks or months sometimes, but feel like they're very attentive. Right. And it's something beyond just the amount of time the quantity of time, the quality of time, the sex, gifts, whatever it is. It is like there's something else right. there. I, yeah, that's really interesting. I think you're spot on. And I'm seeing this show up. I have a, a lot of clients who are, say, they're in their their reinvention of life, right? They've done they've they've assembled a life they really like and they don't want to burn it to the ground, but their their needs aren't getting met. And they don't usually have the words for it. But what they describe to me is I'm not getting the attention that I want. Or they describe that they are, they, they use the words that say like, we spend all of our time together, but they're, but they're not. Like you can feel in all of the rest of their descriptions that their needs are not met. Their, their desire to be seen and known is not met. And some of them, and a, a, actually a growing number of them are describing how they're recognizing that their partner, their current partner just doesn't have the capacity to, to provide that. Maybe they're noticing, oh, my, my partner has is on the spectrum. Oh, oh, like they relate differently than I do. Okay, cool. How do we do this different? Or they they realize, oh, my um my desire for attention is huge. I knew my partner was an introvert when I married them, but I still marry them and my desire for attention is enormous. Oh, it's me. Oh, it's it's me. So what do I do now? And that recognition I'm finding more and more people are like, what if I didn't have to just get a divorce and go find the perfect person. But instead, I decided to diversify. And I talked to people about how that could be non-monogamy, like the, the kitten caboodle, where it's everything from emotional to sexual and everything in between. Or it could be some creative version of monogamy where you still decide to keep some realms of exclusivity and also expansivity, but you start practicing that intentionally. And I'm finding, especially for my Gen X clients and up, we just weren't necessarily provided with that explanation that we get to pick and choose what we take from the monogamous realm. It's like it was supposed to be all one thing. So that feels like it's it is the game changer for people like, oh, if I want attention in a particular realm and my partner does not want to give it, can we negotiate about this particular domain rather than say it's all about the whole thing or nothing? Right. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I have two questions. First, is there anything from this research that really surprised you about jealousy? And second, are there different things that people in monogamous relationships versus non-monogamous relationships get jealous about? Mm -hmm. Like, what are the things that are causing jealousy within these two different groups of people? Yeah. Well, one of the things that surprised me was actually how prosaic some of it was. How, like... 
I, I genuinely felt, I, I felt the tenderness in people's stories when they were like, but it's, but we're doing all the right things. So I shouldn't have to feel jealousy. Right. So especially in monogamous relationships where they really, nobody talks. So when none of my subjects has ever reported, actually, and none of my communication outside of that has ever anyone reported being taught clearly about jealousy and what to do with it when they were a child. Okay. So yeah, sure. I, I certainly yeah. wasn't. Right. I mean, definitely right. not. Yeah. And, and I go so far. Just figure it right, out. Just figure it out. It. And yeah. at like the hardest time of your life. And so first, and, and I mean, I go deep into, um, if you're going to first experience jealousy when you're like between zero and four, and then you re-experience it in romantic relationships when you're in puberty, and then like, ouch. You're going to act like the zero or four-year-old when you're dealing with jealousy exactly. in those romantic relationships. Exactly. Yeah. So I can't say I didn't expect that. I have seven children. I did have some expectation that that would happen because as I was like nursing one and then the next came along, we met jealousy right up close and it was very real. <laughs> And yet, I also was surprised to see how how every single person thought jealousy was normal and a completely normal part of the human experience. And I was just enthused. I was like, dang, you know what? I think we're growing. Like, all of us, all together. So I randomly have these, you know, 26 people I've interviewed, and all of them agreed. Jealousy is normal, a normal part of the human experience. And while they might not like it, yeah. So that made my heart warm. Because that let them at least be self-accepting, even if they hated what they were experiencing. Surprising, though, there were a few things that I, I, I've struggled with. And some of them are the levels of what I would categorize as abusive relating that were accepted as completely normal, either in, in, in both groups. Um, in the monogamous group, yes, that definitely was happening. Um, but also in the non-monogamous group, especially in people describing like their first five, six, seven years. Um, some of them had been non-monogamous for a long time and had like worked through a lot of stuff, but their old descriptions, they were like, yeah, that was not okay. And it was heartbreaking. And I think it was a little surprising just how much, how prevalent it was and how people didn't really know that that's what they were reporting. And that was just hard to face. Well, that's another thing we don't get taught yeah. about, really, uh, about what is acceptable behavior in a relationship or not, unless we happen to have parents that are willing to have those conversations with and actually us. Think but, too. I mean, that's always the thing that, yeah, exactly. That's always the thing that flabbergasts me when I look back on it, having been in abusive relationships, right? Is it was like, no, no, like no one sat me down. And I even have people in my family who've, you know, survived abusive relationships, physically abusive relationships. And like no one took the time to clarify, hey, these are definitely bad behaviors. These are healthy behaviors. There's a lot in the middle that's pushing right. it, you know. And so, yeah. So, so yeah, I'm not surprised that people look back on it later and then they're like, oh, in retrospect, that was really not OK. I was just going to say that I also think that people are shocked when they like when they're reporting, they're talking about their experience. Some of them were hearing themselves like, oh, but also there were there were more. There was more than one participant who were, was reporting a controlling or coercive level themselves, like from their. Oh, they weren't reporting that they were being abused. They were reporting that they were being coercive. Right. Like they're talking about things in ways that I'm like, eh, is that really 
And some of it's mi- that mild stuff that we're like, that's what's normalized in the disnified default version of monogamy. And then we, it doesn't matter what relationship container you're in. If that's the normalization, then control. And that's, that's the, my first marriage was that way. I, we were extraordinarily controlling of each other. We didn't know any mm-hmm. different. And I had, I had, I think there were six participants out of that group that were some type of therapist, several of them raised by therapists. So like several raised by a set of therapists. And yet, and yet none of them received an, neither an, a childhood education that they remembered of any kind of anybody ever mentioning jealousy or envy, which we should sort out. Or then when they went through jealousy later, any sense of like, hey, this is a normal thing we should bring up and we should talk about. And that was the other big difference is it was so normalized in non-monogamous circles to proactive, like to have three kinds of conversations, proactive meta conversations about jealousy, processing conversations about jealousy, and then planning conversations about jealousy, like community wise. And that's just like there isn't a container for that in the monogamous paradigm, but there could be, there absolutely could be. So do it. I mean, it's something that Whenever we talk about jealousy, one of the comparisons I like to bring up is how we do learn a, I would say, more socially acceptable way of handling jealousy when it comes to our family members or our friends or things like that. When we're jealous of, you know, them getting a promotion that we didn't get, or they got to go on a trip that we didn't get to go on, or they have a partner that's great and I don't, those sorts of things were, were kind of taught like that, that, acceptable and adult mature thing to do is not try to sabotage that, try to control them, try to limit them in some way, but to kind of, you know, yeah, it sucks and I want that, but like, it's not the end of the world. I don't need to get in there and change it. And yet when it comes to our romantic relationships, it's like we're taught totally the opposite, like that you should be controlling and that it's somehow this person doesn't count as a person in the same way as everyone else, that it's like this massive schism between the way that it's acceptable to behave with everyone except this one type of person in your life. And that's weird. Can, can I sort those out, though? Yeah, yeah, do it. It is true. We're given a little bit more um, socialization around like when somebody gets a promotion or somebody is getting married and we're not or somebody's, you know, whatever. They, they got something we want. But that's actually envy. It's not jealousy. And, and sure. the reason I think this matters is we like, envy can be incredibly motivating for us because it's, it's between it's an I thou thing. They have what I want and there is no third person involved. Right. I can identify jealousy because it's always triangular. There could be a whole bunch of overlapping triangles, but it's always triangular. It's a social experience of triangulation, whereas envy has just it has me and this other And so there is also there's a psychological difference here because I can transmute envy into motivation really quickly. And many people were taught like, oh, well, if you like that, he got that trophy. Cool. Go work harder on your kicking and maybe you'll get that trophy. But when we're talking about wanting someone else, right, if we're talking about jealousy, now we're talking about I describe it this way. I have me, the jealous one, the I have my beloved and I have the perceived interrupter. And the perceived interrupter, Jace, you are spot on. It's like they othered in this phenomenal way of like we can dehumanize them 
and not treat them. And we can also dehumanize the beloved because they become an object. And that's actually how we refer to it. We'll talk about like the jealousy, the object of my jealousy. And I think it is it is so remarkably different right from the get-go. We can see jealousy in infants as young as six months old. So it's this is hardwired to protect our 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 care bond. And that's just so different than the experience of envy. And I, so for me, if if we just sort these two things out, we can then leverage the fact that we are able to deal with envy better. We have socialized ourselves a little bit better to deal with it. So what can we do about jealousy? Because it does it. If people conflate the terms every day, um, in fact, more than half of my research participants conflated the terms. It's totally a normal thing to do. But when we do, we lose track of the fact that you would treat these two emotional experiences differently in order to use them successfully, because jealousy has great wisdom for us, as does envy. I'm going to need to sort them out. Yeah, but I think in my life right now, so if I'm looking at envy as like, okay, they got the trophy, I just got to go work on my kicking, and then maybe I'll get the trophy too. But then maybe I take the same approach with jealousy. I'm just going to go work on my kicking (laughs) a little bit. (laughs) Not for a trophy. Just for my own self-regulation. I think that sounds like a pretty good reason to just, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Find a willing kicking partner. Just kick kick dance it out, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I I think that that distinction between wanting something someone else has that I don't and perceiving that something I have is under threat of being taken from me, yes, very different and, and garners that different kind of reaction. I would still argue, though, that we're socialized to a very different set of standards with anyone else besides a romantic partner in that in that same way, right? Yeah, so again, absolutely. to go back to the friend analogy, my friend starts becoming close with somebody else and maybe spending less time with me, right? Exactly the same scenario that, that everyone's afraid of with their romantic partner. And yes, I've seen in my life some kind of shitty, shady ways of dealing with that situation too with friends, right? That does happen, but I think but that... But that's jealousy. Most people... That's yeah, straight. No, I'm yeah, saying that is jealousy. jealousy. We see some bad behavior, but I would say that most people acknowledge a certain amount of that's messed up what I'm doing and that's not really appropriate. They can own it, yeah. But we <laughs> don't, right. But but with these romantic relationships, there's kind of this, no, that's just how it is. Yeah, and that... Because I think it's romantic. That totally showed up in the study. There was like participant after participant mm. would t- would say like, yeah, they're mine. Like, like, yes, mm-hmm. they are mine. And that sense right. of, of ownership, entitlement, possessiveness. There's a researcher, um, Aaron Benzev, talks about entitlement and how entitlement is right at the heart of jealousy. Um, and if we deal with the entitlement that we have toward partners, that we might untangle this. And Jace, I think you're spot on mm-hmm. when you say that is a place where we have practiced dealing with jealousy more productively by disentangling our right to this person and also by just using different words we might like we can even soften it i often Mm. will say like i'm really jelly of that (laughs) rather than like calling it out yes i love right rather rather than being like oh i am like claws in this is mine and you i have to have this person and almost reducing them to an it i have to have it um so yeah there's totally a transferable skill set here and the only reason I like to tease these two apart is because when we're talking about an object, things get real murky when we start talking about social media and phones. Is social media or a phone, is that a, is that a person? Is that like a, an object that I could actually be, like, be jealous of it interrupting my connection? 
because I start to humanize it. I start to anthropomorphize that relationship. I start to imagine real interrupters. Mm. So this is why I think it's really interesting to get into because many people are struggling with jealousy, but don't know. And again, like I treat these as two different experiences because we, we envy is more of an injury to the self. Jealousy is an injury to your relational capacity. So we're going to work with them differently. So for our listeners, do you have any good takeaways or tools for people that are struggling with this really strong desire for attention and not being able to necessarily get it, especially if they're new to something like non-monogamy and are just for the first time experiencing having their partner be away from them in certain capacities that they're not used to? Yeah. So... The, the number one thing that popped out of the first study that was all non-monogamous people who were, they were between two and 20 years in, they very clearly revealed that there was like a five-step pathway that they walked themselves through in order to navigate jealousy. <laughs> it, and I did not go looking for that. That just showed up. And I was like, oh, okay. So they, they notice jealousy sooner, right? So the sooner you can notice that you're jealous, the easier it will be to work with it. Um, so you need to learn your body cues. You just you need to understand that you're having somatic sensations probably before you have the cognitive thought that you're jealous. Um, and it, once you've memorized those, it gets easier to deal with faster. You need to name it, literally name the fact that you're feeling jealousy because ownership of that emotion returns the power of it to you. Like, oh, I'm experiencing jealousy. And that puts me in a position to now say, oh, right. OK, cool. The jealousy is mine. Now I'll try working on it. But we also can name all of the emotions that come with it, right? And that was very helpful for multiple people. And I see it help people all the time. Jealousy gets thrown as like this big wet blanket over all these other emotions. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there are competing theories about whether jealousy is a, is a simple emotion or whether it's a complex emotion. But for me and what my research, I what I've turned up is jealousy has accompanying emotions. It's not for me to decide whether they are jealousies made of them or they come along with but here they are we've got anger we've got sadness we've got anticipatory grief we've got shame there's so much and so if people like notice that they're feeling jealous and then name all those bits most people already have some tools for dealing with sadness anger rage control all these other emotions that come along with it so now we're already like 10 steps ahead just by following the first two parts of the jealousy roadmap that my participants so neatly laid out for me. I thank you to them. And then it's about like changing the story, changing the story that you're telling yourself and starting to hear other stories. I mean, I think listening to this podcast, hearing people's stories so that you start normalizing on the fact that jealousy is navigable. It is not a it does not mean anything's wrong with you. Anything's wrong with your relationship. It doesn't mean that your partner has to change what they're doing so that you feel differently. That's a huge part of it. And then, you know, I hear right. I'm, I'm now recalling you had a recent episode on boundaries, naming your needs, naming them and then being able to actually mm -hmm. ask for them. That was the fourth step. Every single participant was so clear on the fact that as long as they didn't actually identify their need and they just kept saying, I don't want you to do that. They were stuck because I don't want you to do that. So I'll feel different is not empowering and doesn't actually provoke our partners to have a lot of empathy for us so saying what you right. need mm -hmm. and like mm -hmm. refer back to mm -hmm. every multi-amory episode covering this 
right? <laughs> right. Name yeah. your needs and figure out how to communicate about them. You know, use your tools. And then the last step, and this one is totally optional, um, if you happen to be a person who can foster compersion and you want to do that, people who were able to foster compersion had something else to aim some of their attention at, but it wasn't required and not mm. everybody experienced it. So that's it. Five steps. Oh, that's great. That's, Perfect. that's fantastic. I, that's I so love cool. that it's, it's a lot of the stuff we've talked about, but seeing it kind of broken down because you were able to collect all these different people's accounts of it yeah. and kind of go, oh, I see the patterns. I see what that is. I love it. That's so cool. I, I love that because it feels like this nice, like condensing of all these different approaches and roadmaps through jealousy that I've seen so many other people take, right? Uh, with different contexts and different relationships. You know, I know for myself, thinking about the fact that, I don't know, when I first started practicing non-monogamy in my early 20s, I was probably just at the like noticing stage. Yeah. You know, like I can just notice it, but I'm not going to name it. I'm not going to own it. I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm just going to pretend that it's not here because that's bad non-monogamy, you know, as my poor, tender, little early 20-year-old self thought, right? And then, you know, I don't know. It's it's like so interesting to see it kind of build upon it in that way. This is also such a helpful framework, I think, to think about, especially because when you do suddenly get caught off guard by like a jealousy attack or something like that. Even having something, some little boxes to put this into, right. right, can be so helpful and so regulating for so many people. That's so cool that your participants gave that to you. Totally. Instead yeah, of you yeah. being the one to be like, hey, try this and let's see how it goes. Yeah, the, the evidence was already there. And that's that was my favorite part about it. So when I gave my TEDx, I had to pick like a thing to talk about. And I wound up talking about compersion because I, I just thought that there should be a TEDx out there on compersion at the time. So I was like, right. there. Mm -hmm. yeah. But if I were doing it again today, I would actually choose this roadmap because it emerged from the data and people are out there like hacking this together themselves, right? Like, so these were different people in different communities all over North America, like piecing this together. And what I noticed is there were also these bubbles where like the L.A. bubble really had a handle on this aspect and the Washington, D.C. bubble really had a handle on this aspect and the Portland bubble <laughs> has a handle on a different aspect. And I'm seeing that play out with my clients. Too. I wonder why. Oh, I want to ask six billion questions. We <laughs> oh. do not have time. I want all of the goss about everyone in every location. <laughs> I'm oof, oof. Oh, God, I'm so intrigued. It's so fun to see, too, how there were many monogamous participants who reported just feeling calm having spent an hour talking with me about jealousy, even though they struggled a little bit. Like they didn't know what exactly we were going to be talking about because it wasn't they didn't come in like, yay, I'm going to talk about jealousy because this is a thing we talk about in my world. Right. They were like, uh, I guess I can. Yeah, I felt jealousy. I can do that. And they sat down and they talked about it. And some of them were moved like to tears and beyond. And some of them were like because they were really wow. deep in their stuff. And some of them were more like okay, I'm actually taking this from like a 40,000 foot view. I can see it. But all of them were like, yeah, it's, we don't talk about this in a structured way. Like they, so they, they talk about it with their friends, like in a, in a casual, if something comes up. So if there's an, a jealousy inspired feeling like this big set of sensations or an incident or a problem, they talk about it, but they weren't proactively talking about it. And so there was this sort of calming to, Oh, yeah, actually, I do have a like I have some ways that I work with this. Here's here's how because I would ask them these questions. And they're like, yeah. And 
how fascinating that sitting right there within themselves was the capacity to build what they needed, which was community to talk about jealousy mm. proactively and comfortably as a totally normal thing. I love that. That's so cool. Before we wrap up, I did have one little bonus question I wanted to ask you. Uh, as a you know, as a therapist, as a psychoanalyst, what does it say about a person who organizes their books by color? That's a great question. And for those who are not seeing the video, find there are, it's Hamilton. very beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. Very beautiful. I love it. Okay, so I'll okay. My sister is one of these people, also. So oh, we can okay. Wall rope her. Yeah, I'll tell you this. First off, they're not just not just by color, but this happens to be all sexuality and relationship titles. This happens to be all depth psychology uh, titles. So this is literally a representation of self. Uh, and the rainbow is because I'm queer, but I uh, have so much passing privilege. Um, like I, I'm a mom to seven teenagers. I've been a mom since I was 22 years old. So wow. like I like to wear my queerness on my sleeve because it's erased every day. Even though my husband and I are both mm. queer, it's just erased all the time. So yeah, the rainbow is actually really simple. We don't need any dream analysis at all. Just straight up queer flagging. Hell yeah. I appreciate also that your show is called Playing With Fire and there is fire, in your, actual fire in your background. People who are not watching the yeah. video can't see. There's there's yeah. an object there on is. fire. I, always. Every time I'm talking to anyone. I am also a double Leo born in the year of the dragon and my nickname is Phoenix. So, yes. Oh, and my, and my moon a, is an Aries. I'm a, I'm a dragon yeah. lady. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Lots Love of it. fire going on. That's yeah. great. <laughs> uh, this has been fantastic. Where can our listeners find more of you yeah, and so your work? Yeah, so if you are interested in just like nabbing that jealousy framework so that you've got it in one place, I would recommend going to listentojolie.com. Just go to listentojolie.com and you'll get my top five relationship guides. I think the best one in there, well, maybe it's a split two ways. The, the jealousy framework's just laid out for you in there. So you'll just have it. You don't have to take notes. Also, it has my what is sex conversation, which if you've never had that before, it's just a great conversation to have. And it's one page and you can blame it on Jolie. You can be like, hey, we're going to have this conversation about what is sex. And somebody else asked us to. And if you want to find me on social media, you can find me anywhere at D-R-J-O-L-I underscore Hamilton. Dr. Jolie underscore Hamilton. Like the musical. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being with Thanks us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was totally a joy. And we want to hear from you listeners. So Jolie, what is our question that's going to go on our Instagram stories this week? This is a question I love to ask my research participants and really anybody I get a chance to talk to anywhere. And that is, what is the purpose of jealousy? What's it for? Yeah. So what is the purpose of jealousy? I'm super intrigued to hear the responses to that one. So if you're listening out there, the best place to share your thoughts with our other listeners is in the episode discussion channel in our Discord server, or you can also post about it in our private Facebook group. You can get access to these groups and you can join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Emily Matlack, and me, Dedeker Winston. Our production assistants are Rachel Schenewerk and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. Judy. 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.